Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the European power markets, their past, their current state, and their future. There's a growing interest in trading European power right now, with a number of new entrants and funds entering the space, but it's also seen by the global markets as carrying the banner in energy transition, and studying the markets offers a glimpse and an insight into what the future might hold for other power markets around the world. Joining us to discuss the European power markets is Laurent Sagalan. Lauren is a veteran in the space, a clean energy investment banker. He's been a management consultant and a trader in European power and carbon markets. He's an investor in digital platforms associated with renewables. And he's also the co-host of the Redefining Energy podcast, one of the most popular podcasts in the energy sector and focused on the energy transition. Laurent, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about the European power markets, the, a little bit on the past and then what's going on currently. It's a very active and interesting space. And then looking towards the future where Europe is really, I think, seen by the world as the torch carriers for energy transition. And we're going to go into, I guess, some of the political and security routes to that. Can you just give us an overview of, of the European power markets and, and when they started to deregulate and kind of the, the start of of this as a, as a traded environment? Yeah, I mean, definitely deregulation and startup trading happened in the 90s. So you really had a strong political hand from Brussels, much stronger than now, and where basically the European Commission could dictate what they wanted to uh, states. That was the time of the euro, the, the enlargement to new countries, and uh, they took the U.S. model about trying to break national monopolies. First, they did it for the telecom sector, which was pretty successful. And then they decided to, to do it for the power sector. So it was really a time when, you know, technology, price signal were going much faster than regulation. Now, the interesting thing is, in fact, the physical infrastructure for trading had been developed also during the 90s. For a very simple reason is that the French had literally built too much nuclear capacity, far more than they needed, but they had the budget. So, you know, you know, engineers, you know, they got a budget, they're going to build it. And they ended up putting wires, interconnection inside Germany, inside, you know, more a bit inside Italy, not, not really much in Spain and, you know, going up north to the Netherlands and also a bit on the UK. So you end up with this deregulation, you end up with this liberalization, and you have now the physical infrastructure. You had this a, a political groundswell bringing these, you know, deregulating these markets. You mentioned the US there was modeled in part, and I know the carbon markets were modeled on the SO2 markets in the US. You had this, you also had kind of this, you know, the rise of the American merchant utility and they were going into europe in a big way right at this time right late 90s 2000s bringing their expertise bringing their sort of you know aggressiveness to the space and that also really i mean this was a time when the us and the european utilities were throwing a lot of money at building trading businesses right it really did kick off an entire new sector i totally i mean the fascination was for enron every time i talk to those uh 
this way back when. I was a consultant at PwC and they just said, oh, can you explain us, uh, you know, how Enron works? We want to do like Enron. I mean, every the people were mesmerized. And, you know, after that, when you had your business card from an Enron trader, it was like an MBA at Stan- Stanford or yeah. Harvard. You could get a job literally everywhere. So it was for them a way to show that they were modern because their image was pretty, uh, you know, like old school already. And in fact, they had a fantastic decade. The decade of uh, the 2000, you see the valuation goes up in stock exchange. I mean, Electricité de France EDF ends up at $200 billion valuation. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Now it's worth probably 30. That's tell you how much shareholder value has been destroyed. And they were trading and the carbon market was also linked to that. A lot of people made a lot of money around trading carbon, including myself. And everything was okay. And at the same time, there was this little music the traders did not really listen to, which was the starting the development of renewables. But they were so uneconomic that they were a bit of a laughing stock. You know, say, oh, okay, 1% of the market, 2% of the market. And, you know, by the way, they take uh, $50 per megawatt on the megawatt hour on the market. But then the government, they had $500 of subsidies. So, Whatever. It was really a whatever. And that's true because at the time, the, the, the cost of the capex of the renewables was extremely uncompetitive. But then they just grow, 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 especially Germany. Germany was, they had this energy vendor in head and just, they were not about stopping nuclear yet, but for them, nuclear was already in the rearview mirror. They knew that to diminish their dependency on coal, they, they knew that, you know, all the gas was coming from Russia at the end of the day. So you know, Germany was really the driving force. They were driving force. At the same time, you had this power exchange, which is the EX in Leipzig. And frankly, that's the price setter for Europe, for continental Europe. Everything was like two parallel universe. And 10 years ago, literally within two months, I had two haha moments. I was running my hedge fund, you know, trading power on carbon and the I arrive in the morning and my analysts say, our software went down last night. So what do you mean? Because software, you know, software was collecting price signals every half hour. So, you know, we could, uh, you know, trade a bit of this, trade a bit of that. And because, I mean, trading carbon is trading power. I mean, whatever they say about the steel, the cement, I mean, those guys, they trade once a year. But, you know, trading power, trading carbon was a, was a daily business. Yeah, I said, yeah, price went negative. I said, ah, oh, well, come on. I mean, price cannot go negative. I mean, there's something wrong in the software. And then we, then, no, price went negative. And then I said, oh, my God. People thought that those renewables were the cherry on the cake, but now they are literally eating the cake. And the producing out of gas, coal, and nuclear in the, in the year 2000 was a massive, massive source of profit for those utilities. And every year... 2011, 2012, 2013, you saw prices going down because there were more and more renewables arriving on the market. And it wasn't really, I guess it it took a while for that realization, right? Because you had... They didn't see it coming. They were still planning new coal plants and new gas plants. The 2000s was such an excellent decade. You had these incredible valuations. At the individual level, you had, you know, European power trading. They were some of the best paid people on the block. Everyone was building teams. You know, huge guarantees and so forth. Really a lucrative time. Even with Enron going down, they didn't really skip a beat, right? All of the, all, they all went and joined the European yeah. utilities and all went to the banks. And then not even the financial crisis, I mean, it had a little bit of an impact, but 
the music just sort of suddenly stops. And I guess what you're saying is that you had in the background these really powerful subsidies for, um, maybe you can just lean into that a little bit, for, for renewables, wind and solar, that meant that these things were being built at scale that were effectively uneconomical. And then suddenly we had this decade, or at least a good few years, of just depressed power prices, very little volatility, you, you know, power trading organizations were consolidating, the, the, the utilities suffered significantly, and you just you kind of had the doldrums for a, a long period. Yeah, so when I talk back to regulators, and we say, I mean, you're crazy to have given such high prices for so long for those renewables. And like I say, look, we didn't have a clue. We could not foresee the prices of the technology going down so fast. You know, even in their head, they say, okay, we're going to give you 15 years. Uh, but, you know, they at some point, the, the, the profit made on renewables was so obnoxious that they had to pull, you know, literally pull the plug and almost default on, on, on the subsidies program. Because the guys say, okay, fine, you know, we're going to have 100 megawatt. And, you know, before you, they know it, that, you know, two gigawatt, which was built over, you know, over a period of a year. And because the price went down and nobody saw that coming. But then that's why, you know, pretty much everybody who could build a, a wind farm in the year 2000 and then a solar park in the year in the 2000 did that. Because you would lock in a price year one and then you would spend two years developing it. And by the time you get your solar panels or your turbines, the price had gone down 40%. Plus the banks love it. Interest rate went down and, you know, they lend you 80% of the price. It's just, it was a license to print money to the renewables. That's why it went mm. so fast. And a lot of people did that. And uh, <laughs> and you had, can you just put some, I guess, numbers around it? The difference between power prices in the 2000s and the power prices in the 2010s and the disastrous impact. I mean, and then you can see it now when it come onto it, how different the grid looks today. But the because these u mega utilities got absolutely nailed, by this event, and then it was compounded by obviously Fukushima and other, you know, it, it, it your other aha yeah. moment. It's not just the price that you know went down from the eighties euro per megawatt hour to the forty euro per megawatt. Hour. It's also the capacity factor, because you know when it's windy or when it's sunny, those plants are just not cold in the merit order. So you saw the capacity factor literally dropping. There was this gas plant in. Germany, in the south of Germany, in Bavaria, called Ishting, Ishting 5, like top-notch, super combined cycle, wonderful. They started year one, they had a budget, said, okay, fine, we're going to run 6,000 hours. Year one, they run 2,000 hours. Run two, year two, they run 500 hours. And year three, they run 20 hours. And then they went bankrupt. Because you need to understand, the renewables, they come first in the merit order. So if there is too much renewable on the system, it's not really the price. It's just that people are not going to switch on. Now, of course, your nuclear are must run. So, you know, they must run, you know, you switch there. But everybody in the generation sector, it became an absolute bloodbath. And that really contributed to the demise of utilities on the generation side. Because those people are not the one owning the assets. The one owning the assets, 80% are insurance company, private equity funds, family offices, mm. you name it. And they spent 10 years lobbying about, you know, their coal plants and their nuclear plants. And, you know, can we get more subsidies? And they just, they, 
they, they didn't saw what was happening. Yeah. And we're going to come on to the, I guess, that's how they, we've sort of gotten through that period and it's got a, there's now an opportunity for traders again and, and with, with a different set of participants. Just a couple of words though on the carbon markets, because as you said, they, they tracked very closely. The same thing happened in carbon. Right for some different reasons, but you you again had a huge crash in prices compared to the two thousands and the and the very lucrative opportunity that was too. Yeah, but for bizarrely for very different reasons, because again the the renewables and the carbon price were totally not linked. When the carbon market was created, and I was people say I was one of the founding fathers, I think I am. I mean, the wind and solar were not even on the radar screen. And anyway, when you talk about the wind and solar people, about the carbon market, you could tell them, look, you can make uh, 20 euro per megawatt hour of you know, additional bonus. And they say, why on earth would, are we going to trade carbon? Because I get my subsidies at 400 euro per megawatt hour. So don't bother. So it was really about trying to, okay, so the carbon market, you had the guys who were behind were the nuclear boys, because they say, you know, at least the cool people who have the cheapest power, at least they, they, they need to buy the carbon. The traders, Shell was very, people wanted to trade the carbon, you know, very, so that was the people behind, and the people who, was, who could have been against, which were the cool guys, got negotiated, and they got their carbon for free. So in fact, everybody, had a good time with carbon. And then on the top of that, there was a system called the Clean Development Mechanism with the Kyoto Protocol, whereby you could, on the top of your free allowances, you could buy credits from China or India, provided you, you know, you do an offset. It's what they call offsets now. So, you know, you capture methane or you do an energy efficiency projects. And you know what? At the time, there were projects popping from all over the place and everything was going to Europe where, you know, five euro per ton of CO2, and you can resell it, you know, trade them one for one for a quota, and boom, resell it at 20. And people mm. made millions. But you know, at the end, when you got such a gold rush like this, the market got swamped with credits, literally swamped, and the price of carbon went to from 20 to five and stayed for eight, nine years until that surplus got up. There wasn't really the political will either though, right? No. Ah, they looked, they had the financial crisis, they had other fish to fry. So, you know, you had Greece and you had the, the various crises. So I think that for four or five years, the regulators said, look, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> so you've got this, you've had this, you know, the, the sort of consolidation and the, the sort of the discounting of utilities across Europe as a result of this, ultimately a big drop in the price of power. You've also achieved the goal of much more integrated and interconnected European power market as we stand today. You know, our perspective has been that European power trading has been in the doldrums for uh, quite some time. But this last 2019 and certainly 2020, and now it's 2021, there is renewed interest, renewed opportunity around power trading. Before we talk about the next decade, why is that? Why have we seen, is it because of it's more integrated and any shock in the Eastern Europe is going to have a price, create volatility in prices in, in on the EEX? Well, what's going on right at this moment that means is there's, there's renewed interest in power trading? I think the interest is, is really totally different because, you know, way back when the utilities used to own 100% the generating assets. But if you look now, all the renewables which has been built in Europe the utilities only own 20% of the new assets. So there's no more vertical integration. The owners, they're like pension funds, private equity funds, 
even individuals, they're going to use traders. So the, the whole supply side is totally disaggregated. On the retail side also, you see a lot of startups. For instance, in the UK, we've got Autopus Energy, Ovo Energy, which took over the utilities because their, their system, their digital platform, which is linked to your iPhone, is much better, literally much better, and consumers are switching. So utilities are kind of a strategic problem because, okay, they're going to do networks, they're going to do transmission or distribution, but that's not very sexy. So the whole system, which was national and vertically integrated, is literally exploding, and which means that every participant now has to trade. You know, the renewable guys, they have to sell their power, so that goes through exchange, and the distribution the retailers needs also to go on the exchange. And what's very interesting is because those supply, demand are really, you know, very data-driven, very digital. In fact, you trade, the, you trade the year, and then you trade the quarter, and then you trade the months, and then you trade the day ahead, and then you trade the intraday, and you have those the people get pretty good at, you know, weather forecast and, you know, how much wind is going to be. Because, you know, between a day of low wind and a day of high wind, it's like the equivalent of like, I don't know, it can be like 20 nuclear plants that you need to cut down or re-ramp up. So there's a lot of trading around that, so short-term trading that creates a lot of liquidity. And everything's digitized. I mean, just look Germany. Germany, that's 6% renewables in the year 2000. In 2020, it's 48%. 6%, 48%. And all this needs to be traded. So I, I guess that's one of the things. And of course, the new things, the new things that arrives is batteries. Because you just can't let that much intermittent sources running wild and having those negative prices or having those, those price spikes in a few days in winter where it's cold and not windy and not sunny. So all of a sudden you have those capacity markets, you know, people have a diesel generator which sit idle for, you know, 50 weeks and going to run for two weeks. And people trade options around that. It's very interesting. So actually it's, it's far more structural than say some of the recent activity in trading in the US, which has been more sort of event-driven, you've got actually structural changes that have happened in the marketplace that means trading is now A, more necessary to balance all these multiplication of participants tied to renewables, but also, you know, is providing more opportunity in a short term and a long term. Fascinating. Yeah, because events, there are events all the time. Yeah, yeah, the wind's <laughs> so... either, you know, blowing or not. It doesn't need, you don't need a polar vortex to shift markets, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. You just need an Atlantic depression. You know, you have a you have a, you have a good Atlantic depression. It's gonna it's gonna the wind is gonna blow like crazy for four hours. Your price can divide by three by four, and then the Atlantic depression is moving eastwards, and you know, puff, they go back up. Are you seeing it as well? More all of these new organizations that are kind of disintermediating the traditional generators with you know using platform technology. Are they? Is there more demand for trading traders or funds getting in? What are you seeing out there and just in terms of velocity of traders and participants? That's a very good question because it's hard to trade stochastic. It's hard to trade the event. But I can't really put that in a financial model. So the people who are trading that, and you have got people with algos, and it's seasoned professionals. When you bring a fund, and there are a lot, if I want to sell a wind farm and solar park, Literally, I've got 100 potential buyers, if not 200. 
if I want to, you know, finance a wind park, uh, solar farm in Europe, I've got probably 100 banks who are willing to do that. But, you know, they need stable revenues. So, you know, long-term PPAs or, you know, long-term hedge. Otherwise, you know, they won't get finance. In general, those guys, you know, once they've got the PPA, the long-term agreement signed, you know, they're not going to trade it. They're going to pass it to someone who's going to trade for them. So, you know, you, that's how you see it. I'm quite close to the head of the German Trading Association, a wonderful guy called uh, Marcel Steinbach. And he has something like 800 traders, you know, uh, inside his organization. Some are just like two guys. Some are like, you know, groups of, you know, a hundred. Some are very regional. Some take over Germany. Some takes over bigger zones. So you think there's going to be consolidation, but, you know, there's more and more granularity. Because a guy is going to be the expert of Mecklenburg, so he's going to be the best trader in Mecklenburg, is going to do fine. You are seeing that in the US as well, right? This move of trading to the nodal local level, and you're building expertise in that particular, as you say, very small region. But also, I think as well, it's kind of interesting, if we were looking back 20 years, in order for, you know, whether it was Ascent or whichever council I used to work on, to build a trading business... It was hundreds of millions of dollars. It was lots of operators, lots of, it was a big operation, right? And I think now you've got, there is, there's so much more trading is automated. So much more is, has been replaced by platforms, etc. It's also less expensive to get into trading, right? It's just, you know, it's about having a margin yeah. account and all the rest of it. Yeah, but look, you used to trade uh, by the hour, so, you know, you could, you know, the day ahead, manual trader, he had to post, you know, 24 bids. But, you know, for instance, there are certain places they're going to trade by the quarter of an hour. And even I think in Australia, they're trading by the five minutes. So you need to put 400 bids a day. You know, that has to be <laughs> automated. There's no way an old style trader can put 400 bids for five minutes in the system. So there are systems who are plugged into system and which are, I mean, the amount of integration is even for me, it's, it's mind-blowing. I was talking to the investment fund who is managing the biggest fleets of batteries, and he says, I don't even know what's going on in my batteries. You know, we put algorithm, and then the, the algorithm of the battery is going to take some market signals, and they're going to decide if they're going to trade in the frequency uh, FFR market, the capacity market, the dynamic response market. But this is a link also to the ONM because they buy it from BAD or BYD or CATL. And they're going to say, okay, if we just do a bit of frequency, we're not going to do a full cycle on my battery. But if I, if I juice my battery to the minimum, it's going to impair the life, you know, the lifetime of my battery, which is itself linked to the insurance company. We say, do I have the right to juice my battery today? And all those systems, they kind of talk together. And the guy just go at the end of the day and say, okay, that's how much I made. Wow. So it's, it's crazy. I want to talk. So I think that gives us all a good idea that, you know, this, this is actually more structural in terms of the trading opportunity. We've had this, the great start, the renewables and, and ultimately transparency reducing the opportunity. And now that's coming back out as kind of renewables are established. I want to talk about energy transition because the world looks to Europe as it's leading the way in decarbonization around power generation of the power grids. Why is Europe the leader in this? What's, what are the, the social and economic and political background to why Europe is, is leading this charge? It's very simple. 
because uh, 10 years ago, we imported, as a continent, we imported $500 billion of energy from outside Europe. <laughs> we imported 80% of our oil. We imported 80% of our gas. So, you know, to put an environmental policy, you're not going to hurt anyone except the importers. It's not like you have got guys. Look, if, if we had the, the Permian or, you know, Nosga war in Germany, I would say that uh, the whole story about energy transition would be much slower. But frankly, nobody was defending. We just saw those billions going out. And unfortunately, in Europe, we don't have the U.S. Navy, so we cannot show the muscle. So we need to be nice to Mr. Putin. We need to be nice with the Saudis. We need to be nice with all those people because, you know, we need their oil. We need their gas. So the push for energy transition also comes from energy security. Because every kilowatt hour we can produce, and especially we can produce from wind or solar, is one less barrel, one less cubic meter we need to import from those countries. And if you look over, you know, those last 10 years, and some people might say, okay, it costs a fortune in subsidies. Okay, maybe, but now our external energy bill has halved. Plus, a lot of jobs were created because the good thing about renewable energy, if if I look at, uh, for instance, the extraordinary adventure of the UK offshore wind industry, there was nothing 10 years ago. And under conservative governments, you know, not even like left wing or something, they, they have 10 gigawatt running on the North Sea. They managed to do that because first it's quite shallow. So, you know, you don't have to dig like thousands of meters, North Sea, you know, you have a lot of places where you get sandbanks at, you know, 50 meters, 150 feet beneath the surface. And of course, you had the oil industry was already there and drilling for decades. So basically, you could use a lot of the knowledge of the offshore oil industry and repackage it and use it. And if, if you see the first guys who developed the offshore wind farm were linked to the oil industry, you know, that the maintenance boats and, you know, there's a lot of engineers and they knew how to run cables and they knew the type of steel which would not be corroded. Success stories are more oil guys turning into wind than onshore wind guys going offshore. The few experiments in Germany they had, which were like onshore successful guys who just went offshore, they, they got bankrupt. There was too many challenges. So I know it's happening in the US right now. It's very exciting. Offshore industry is very exciting. The size of those machines, I mean, 14 megawatts. Now you get the, the GE one, the Aliad, and you've now the Siemens at 14 megawatts per machine. I mean, the biggest you have on is what, like four megawatts or five? Because now, I mean, U- US is pretty, not very dense, but now in Europe, small windmills, that's fine. You know, it's 50 meters high. But now you say, okay, the new generation is half the Eiffel Tower. You know, some guys say, oh, no, I mean, it's, you have a lot of resistance now to wind. You know, even repowering is difficult because when you repower, you're going to put much, you know, much stronger machine. It's not like solar, you know, solar, the, the panels just get better every year. It's, it's a, there's something called a, a Swanson Law. So, you know, they, every year they mm. just get cheaper, but that's, uh, that's, and you just need to replace the panel, right? The frames there. Yeah. Yeah. You replace the panel. You, you, you don't see it on, on the horizon, but you know, wind. It's, you know, it's mechanics, it's not electronics. So you just, in order to capture, you just need bigger turbines. At sea, when you are 100 miles away from the shore, you don't bother anyone. I mean, you cut a deal with the fishermen around, and they, you know, they get good deals. Plus, you hire a lot of their kids in the ports, to, because a lot of maintenance going on, doing checking the blades. and the, So uh, it's a great success. And, and 
in the US, it's a bit different because you've got those magnificent wind resources in, in, in the plains. Your problem is how do you get the power to east or to California? Well, and also a lot of those wind is blowing over plains that beneath has lakes of oil, right? And as you and I have discussed, it's the US doesn't have the same security issues as Europe did around importing oil, or at least not anymore with the, with the huge rise of shale. So but staying on energy transition, because again, the world is looking to Europe, or we're, we're all you know, looking to Europe as this is how these power markets might develop. Big debate out there at the moment is ultimately down to electrons versus molecules, renewable power versus, okay, renewable diesel, biogas, all these things, including hydrogen. You talk daily to leaders across the European power markets, from regulators through to investors, through to traders. What's the sense out there on, on that particular, dare I say it, battle? Oh, my God, it's crazy. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> About a year ago, out of thin air, the European Commission said, hydrogen is the Swiss army knife of decarbonization. And it's going to go into mobility, it's going to go into heating, it's going to go into industrial processes, everything you can imagine. Oh, storage. I would say the electron people were like, oh, and by the way, and we're going to give you 400 billion euro of subsidies to roll out this hydrogen dream, which is like the GDP of Sweden. <laughs> people say, hang on, what's going on here? First, we realized that this famous hydrogen council, in fact, was just a cover for the oil and gas industry. The same guys, you know, same the PR companies, very savvy, I have to say. But, you know, the, 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 the electrons begin to strike back and they say, guys, first of all, number one, you talk about yourself as a solution. But first, you need to re recognize that there is a problem. And the problem is there is hydrogen production right now. So Europe is about what, 10 million ton a year. I say the world is about 80. Now, the great thing is this is your data. You can't. Nobody really knows what the production of hydrogen is. And you... You produce this hydrogen with 98% of um, fossil fuels. So some of the use, like ammonia, which is fertilizer, that's a good use. You know? So please continue to produce hydrogen. But maybe before you talk about new uses of hydrogen, maybe you should consider hydrogen clean your own backyard before you talk about multiplying the production of hydrogen by five, by six, by whatever. So that's the type of discussion we're having. And then they're saying... Okay, we're going to use it in cars and say, and by the way, Toyota, this beautiful Mirai, and say, hey, excuse me, you know, we're going EVs, EVs. You know, Elon Musk has done a crazy job. And he has literally struck the, the head of the, the German auto industry. First, you know, five years, they laugh about him. First, they ignore him, then they laugh about him and they cry. And now they just follow him. But uh, they're going if I seen in the recent months was Volkswagen has done and, and Mercedes, they're coming pretty fast on him. Not in the software space. The software is, is pretty much, uh, you know, self-driving, I think is still far ahead. But the batteries, everybody's catching up on him. I think the, the, he has an advantage right now, but I think he has, his advantage in batteries is going to be gone within 18 months. So going back to hydrogen, forget about using hydrogen in mobility. And then we go into heating. 
And people realize, oh, I mean, Europe, there's 200 million gas boilers. So you're going to put 200 million hydrogen boilers? How does it work? You know, how, you know, are you going to use the existing gas pipelines and say, oh, you know, but you need to change the compressor, the, the steel gets brittle. I mean, there's so much problem. And then you take every sector one by one where they promise you the moon and you say, it's not going to happen. Or it's going to happen in 50 years. You know, hydrogen planes, hydrogen trains, hydrogen this, hydrogen that. So, yeah, that's the debate we're having now. We're saying, look, and of course, you've got energy storage. You say, oh, but you know, we produce too much energy. You've got negative prices. We don't, we don't put electrolyzers and those electrolyzers, they're going to produce hydrogen. And, you know, when the wind's not blowing, we're going to use that hydrogen to run a fuel cells and we're going to reproduce power. And makes sense, except the round trip efficiency of hydrogen as storage is 35%. So basically, you put a hundredth of energy, you get 35% back because you need to compress it, you need to store it, you need to put that in a fuel cell, which has a 7% energy efficiency. So the round trip efficiency of hydrogen as a storage is 35%. And at the same time, the batteries is 95%. Even the pump hydro is 80%. So you say, hang on, we don't need hydrogen. So now they say, we're going to put it in steel. Okay, fine, put it in steel. But it's not, it's not the Swiss army knife. So I think... You've got the, so definitely you, the European auto manufacturers have chosen, right? They've gone EV. You've got these, this sort of insurmountable, at least at the moment, issue of efficiency. Is there an argument that the, I mean, in some, in some of the same way, the, the rise of renewables in the 2000s, the European Union is going to put so much money at this and it's going to have so much, obviously the, the hydrocarbon producers have a real vested interest in this thing getting off the ground, that we're going to have hydrogen come what may. Or do you think it's, and I'm asking you to speculate here, is it sort of a lot of hype at the moment and there has been hydrogen hypes in the past and eventually it will just, you know, it will it will have some niche roles in certain industries? Or do you think it could be the, the, the subsidies could be so significant that we're going to have a hydrogen economy come what may? So if you look at governments subsidizing a nascent technology, and by the way, hydrogen is not nascent at all, but let's say for the sake of the argument, you just discover the electrolyzer. It was discovered, I don't know, centuries ago. And you say, okay, I'm going to put money so we can scale. You know what's what the Chinese done with solar, for instance? We can scale and with scale, we're going to reduce the price of the technology. And you know what? It's going to be, we can remove the subsidy at some point. That is fine with me. And governments have done that. And some of the uh, subsidies were literally lost on, you know, technology did not work. Well, they worked, but they never scaled, so the price never went down. So we can talk about tidal, we can talk about, you know, geothermal, about concentrated solar. I mean, there's a lot of things which, but that's the role of a government because there's no private capital for that. If you look at the price of hydrogen, whether you put green hydrogen, which basically you put electricity in an electrolyzer and, you know, produce hydrogen from it, or what they call blue hydrogen, which is basically you put gas and then you're going to capture the carbon, and then that's how you get your blue hydrogen. 70% of the cost of the hydrogen that goes out of those processes, which are supposed to be clean, remains a fuel. The cost of the technology is not relevant. It's just the cost of fuel. So the question is, I've got power, which is clean. If I want to subsidize hydrogen, it means I need to buy power at 20% of the cost of the market. So it's not about subsidizing a technology in order to, for it to get cheaper, it's about subsidizing a fuel. So 
I don't think government job is to subsidize fuels, period. So, uh, and, and look, I th you know, people are, the regulators are calling me say, you know, what are you talking about? I say, look, it's very simple, you know, in order to trade, and you know that, I know that, every trader knows that, you need three things. You need data, you need space, and you need time. You need data, you need markets, you need to know at what price you can, uh, you know, buy, you can sell. You need to know who's doing what, supply and balance. That's number one. Number two, you need space. Space meaning you can move a fuel from A to B. Now, I can move LNG from Texas to Rotterdam, and it's going to cost, uh, you know, $2 per MBTU. You know, you can move power across Europe, and I'm going to have, you know, 5% loss. That's fine. You know, you can move it. You don't lose a lot. Then time, you can store it. So when you store in a gas injection, you know, you're going to lose 5%. That's fine. You can store it. When when you uh, store electricity in a dam, okay, fine. You can lose 10% of it, evaporation and so on. So for power and for gas, you have the data, you have the space, and you have the time. And you arrive in hydrogen, you have zero data, you have zero market, plus you can't move it because if you move it in pipelines, you're going to lose 20%, 50% of it, whether it's gaseous or liquid. And you can't uh, use it as storage because the round trip efficiency is 35%. So in a summary, you have two very good fuels you can trade, power and gas, and you want to produce the shittiest fuel on the planet. You cannot bank. It's not bankable. So bankers say, okay, show me a price of hydrogen in five years' time. Oh, give me the price of gas. Okay, fine. I'm going to finance gas. <laughs> <laughs> that's it sorry it's a bit of a it's a bit of yeah, a rant like but, breaking, breaking a few know, box out there so in 2030 what do you think the european power grid or market looks like right now the batteries are literally doubling every year because they get cheaper and the batteries used to be very profitable in the first 30 minutes and now they're profitable in the first hour and because they get cheaper you know they're going to start eating the cake of the pickers, you know, they're going to be profitable in an hour and a half, in two hours. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Just to understand that. Okay, but just in terms of market arbitrage, in terms of market arbitrage, the batteries that are configured right now, the people they, they're going to put a one-hour battery because you know they make money on the one-hour battery. But if if they put a one-hour and a half battery or two-hour battery, they're not sure they can justify the extra hour. You see, they're going to make money because they're going to rotate once or twice a day for an hour. But then they're going to realize, hang on, maybe if I put an hour and a half battery, you know, I can still make money because the battery is getting cheaper. So that's where you need the ramp up in the evening after a big solar day or ramp up because they've been, you know, uh, the, you know, the wind has gone down. Right now, this job is done by the pickers, the gas pickers, and they're going to eat into that. Second thing is, and you have something which is pretty good, it's called the NSOA, which is the the kind of regulators of all the networks of power in Europe is a very well, you know, very good organization. So you have all their plans. You go on their website and they've got all their plans for new interconnectors, you know, new pump hydro. So all this is pretty well done. So here you have a roadmap. They say, okay, we need, you know, there's too much power in the north of Germany. We're going to put power in the south of Germany. How do we put those HVDC lines? So the there's, there's a physical plan which is, which is there. And the moment you are on, in those programs, there's a lot of subsidies from Europe coming in in case your, your, your project is, is not fully profitable. So you're going you're gonna to have a lot of offshore wind installed, a lot of solar, a bit more wary about onshore wind because 
you start missing good sites, which means you need to go back to old sites and negotiate the repowering of it. But I don't see a big development of onshore wind. And I know some of my friends are going to scream. So it's really going to be solar and solar going up north because solar is oh, in Spain. No, no, but you know, some guys that are putting solar now in Sweden because uh, you know, Sweden is pretty, it's pretty sunny in, in the summer. And cold temperatures work better than hot temperatures, right, with solar. Exactly. So you're going to see solar pretty much everywhere. You're going to see as people start to deregulate, you'll have a lot of, uh, you know, individual homes outside big cities are going to put, you know, solar roofs and, and batteries in, in their in their garage. So that's really going to develop. The big issue right now, people are still scratching their heads about heating because heating is central heating and people want to use heat pumps. Yes, it's very efficient from a, a energy point of view. It's much better than gas, but, it's, you know, it's still more expensive. You know, installing a heat pump is much more expensive than installing a gas boiler. Plus electricity, for historical reasons, is more taxed than gas. I guess their, lobby, their lobbies were not yeah. as good. You're going to have... Pretty much by 2.30, everything's going to be electric in terms of mobility. Which adds to storage at the home, right? This is sort of part of that idea that you're going to be able to sort of balance loads at the household level. Yeah, but look, it's going to be pretty much everywhere because you're going to have the bus depot, you know, all the bus, you know, two years ago, they are oh, they're going to go hydrogen bus. And of course, they didn't. Now they're going every city I know wants their, their electric buses. But that means you have depot, you need to recharge at night, which means more batteries, so they're going to be batteries literally everywhere. And all those will be managed, you know, in digital fleets. You've got stuff called, you know, VPPs. For instance, Shell just bought uh, this uh, German company called Neue Kraftwerke or something. 600 megawatt VPPs. And so Shell, which is they're pretty good, the Shell, they're very savvy guys. They bought also a company in England called LimeJump. And LimeJump is a platform which is in charge of trading and managing all the batteries. So when you're an investor in batteries, you just plug it to LimeJump and they manage it for you. And Shell owns that. So you're going to have more solar. You're going to have more offshore wind because like, you know, people are gung-ho on offshore wind. Very excited. The whole North Sea thing. Electrification of transport. Batteries everywhere. More digital. Just staying on those virtual power plants for a second. Can you just dig into that? What does exactly does that do you think that starts looking like? Who's going to own them? Are we going to see the RWEs of the world trying to get in on this, or is it going to be a completely different group of participants? It's tough because each country is different. So, you know, I don't know how much you can transfer uh, the model you have in Germany of a VPP in Netherlands or, or elsewhere because even the shape of the tariff are different. You know, you need to convince a lot of people to. I mean, Sonnen, uh, which is bought by Shell as well. Sonnen has, uh, you know, a certain number of batteries in everybody's home and, you know, people would sign a special agreement and they would be able to use their batteries as a backup. But it's, you know, every aggregation system for the past 50 years has proven very, very tough to, uh, to scale because you almost need to restart from zero. So... I, I know people talking about microgrids and VPPs and so on, but, you know, it's, that's a bit of, above my pay grade. <laughs> okay, what does this all mean? So you, I, I think that paints a really nice picture for us. It, it's the bed is electrification. You've got increasing sources of renewables. What does it all mean? You've got the batteries that need balancing. What does it all mean 
for traders? What do you see the future of the the European power trader? Are there more of them? Are they are they wealthier? You know, what's is this all going to be digitized and and done and the, and the risk managed? You know, elsewhere. Totally, totally. The the trader of today and even more tomorrow is going to be a digital integrator. It's just going to be codes and codes and algos and so on. I mean, the days of the... Okay, you can always take a wager and say, okay, fine, the price of power in Spain is going to be cheaper and, you know, play the calendar. But, you know, that's that's not really interesting. Or you can say, okay, there's been... It's not going to rain too much uh, in Scandinavia or the snow melt is going to be, I don't know, this or that. And you can take a wager on the, on the, on the price in the North Pool. But... You know, very few people are doing that. So it's going to be really, you know, digitized platforms and owning platforms. That's what it is about. I mean, I'm at the board of a platform called Zygo, which is uh, the leading uh, PPA platform in Europe. And basically, we have, uh, you know, uh, utilities who come and say, okay, I want a one-year PPA, I want a merchant PPA, or you get those corporates, you know, like uh, big food companies and say, okay, I like for my renewable uh, commitment, I like a five-year or seven-year PPA. And we put in front of them, you know, 20 projects, solar, wind. But it's, you know, it's not just that. We say, what are the shapes? And and then, of course, all this link with, you know, lawyers. So the, the contract is automatically digitized and so on and so forth. So it's very digital. Everything's turning digital after that. And then you will have special platform who's going to, you know, track the production versus commitment. And so, all, this, all this is digitized. So the, the 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 trader I knew, the Enron guy, I was taking my coffee with and or my beer with or my probably my whiskey with and was explaining me what the spark spread was, a clean spark spread, and you know doing kind of back on the envelope calculation and how, how you made money. I would go back to the office tomorrow. I would just do the same thing and I would make money. It was wonderful. But this is gone. <laughs> Sorry, it's time for me so to retire. So it's now about is owning the platform and taking rent or having the better algorithm. And that better use of kind of the the physical understanding of the markets attached to the ability to code what you're looking to achieve, those are going to be the, yeah, the kind of yeah, two ways yeah. of doing it. Do you see, while well, we've got you, do you see a role of distributed ledgers, blockchain in the, the future of the European power markets? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No, look, blockchain is very, very, it's very heavy, you know, to move. So maybe it works for... Uh, oil tankers or, you know, big shipments. But, you know, here when in the market of, you know, sometimes milliseconds, sometimes minutes and, you know, tracking blockchain behind that. So, you know, a few years ago, they were like, you know, those young guys who say, oh, we're going to put blockchain in that street. So, you know, when the number 25 uh, needs to run his machine, is going to automatically go to the number 19 was too much solar on his roof and they're going to exchange them. So, okay, fine. <laughs> No, no. So no blockchain. No, no. There's, look, there's a lot of fascinating stuff which are happening, and traders are are needed more than ever because that creates the liquidity daily, monthly, and so on, on which the pricing of power is is known, understood, edge, and so on and so forth. So because the day where government would say okay that's the price of power those days are gone so you need trading more than ever to deliver the price signal whether it's long term medium term or, or, or short term so we've kind of gone full circle 
we're back at a, a great opportunity for traders again. Yeah, and 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 now it goes even into those platforms. I was uh, sorry, those those new type of retailers I was referring to. But you know, uh, how long will it take till Google or Amazon decide also to you know propose power? I think right now they probably have other fish to fry, but it's a very interesting market. So, you know, you'll see on your iPhone and you'll, you'll have different type of tariffs, which is going to be linked, you know, to the home management and say, oh, you know, by the way, if you charge your battery or if you charge your vehicle tomorrow, because they know that there's an Atlantic depression coming, you know what? The price will be negative. So now you see those type of things where, you know, the weather forecast to wind is understood by some retailers the Autopus or the OVO, which really are the best, and have certain type of pass-through where the consumer say, oh, maybe I'm going to charge my, my, my electric car tomorrow because they're going to pay me. Well, not a lot, but, you know, they could, maybe they're going to pay me 10, 10 euro or 10 pounds to charge my car. And this, this is going to happen. Now, it's not going to be the free fall like Texas where guys end up with, you know, $10 bill, uh, $10,000 bill for one day. Because the price was, you know, fully, the merchant price was fully passed through the consumer, which is okay. 9,900 days out of 10,000, the 1,000 day where you get the, the vortex, you're wiped out. So you see those tariffs arriving, but they're always capped. The regulator says, okay, you want to, you have dynamic pricing, fine with us, but you kept it at like three times the, you know, the highest price or something. Because look, that's the new cake. The new cake is the price of, of merchant is around 30, 40, 60, but the price for the consumer is at 150, 200, 250. And this margin, somebody are going to pick yeah. into that. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because, and I kind of want to end up here is that's where the margin, and I think you're seeing that globally, that margin is now the, the opportunity is moving, not from the, the wholesale side, but from the, 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 the merchants, the wholesale side to the retail side. Demand response, demand response, very important mm. as well. But that's the same concept, you know, demand response. You know, people, people accept not to consume. So, you know, they're going to they're gonna sell their, their excess power. But it's the same system. And, and I want to end, you know, the starkest thing, I think, when you sort of step back and look at it, is that actually 20 years ago, we started with a quite a number of typically national generators who owned... The pretty much vertically integrated. Now in twenty, well in twenty thirty, as you look forward, you've probably got generation owned by a variety of private equity hedge funds or whomever. You've got um, okay, there's there's you know that you've got challenges and changes in the distribution side. You've got private equity or whomever owning or car companies or whatever it is owning these battery, these virtual power plants, and you've got consumers owning some storage as well. Like there's no real room for that old utility in the in 2030 if i'm understanding right no 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 there's still going to be some i mean the, the one which are very savvy the ibadrola nl which but you know they become savvy because they went out of their own base and they invested in in renewables pretty much all over the place and uh but you know the traditional one is eaten on the generation front by you know all these investors insurance company pension funds you know, now for them, investing in a fleet of uh, wind or solar, you know, it's great. No problem. No problem. So, you know, plus the, the, the cost of it is cheaper. 
you know, the utility say, okay, you know, I can't really leverage myself and, you know, I need 8% return on, on equity. The other guy says, okay, fine, put, eight, you know, 80% debt at one uh, or 2% and, you know, give me 4% on my equity and I'll be very happy. So they can't compete on that side. On the retail side, depend how much regulation remains. But the moment you're going to deregulate those markets, all those new platforms, they're going to arrive and they're going to show that the legacy retailers are out. So you end up with just like tr tr transmission companies, but you know, even some infrastructure firms can do that. So I don't know. It's, for me, it's, uh, as uti utilities have, uh, need, need to reinvent themselves, you know, uh, but that requires a level of digitization. And I don't know if they have the culture to develop those platforms in-house. So maybe they'll keep their clients, but uh, you know we've seen uh, those those UK platform now they are they are white labeled in Australia and Japan, and in fact the guys keep his the, the, the local keep his clients, but the whole platform is white labeled, so they they use someone else's platform. So they, 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 there's a lot of value that they lose, but they have to do it because they just don't have the tech. Knowledge. And I think that's, you know, I hark back to what Simon Collins said on an episode a, a while back on platforms where, you know, the, the rate of innovation outside your organization is, is greater, you're going to get disrupted. And, and I think that's what's clear from this story. It's been a fascinating discussion, Laurent. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoy your show and, uh, you know, trading is, is my Fantastic. life. Well, and, and before I let you go, can you just give us a couple of words on, on your podcast, which I, I know is wildly more successful than ours, but uh, Redefining Energy. It's a funny story. I've got this great friend called Gerard Reed, and uh, uh, we talk a lot together. And at some point, with the, I don't know, in the spirit of narcissism, we say, I mean, our conversations are so fascinating. Why don't we record ourselves? And that was a pub discussion uh, near Piccadilly, like three years ago. And, you know, we put it to the test. And, you know, amazingly, this podcast is like, you know, people just want more of it. So, but we, we're doing it like we just do it like twice a month and, you know, try to limit to half an hour and, and, and basically have a conversation around stuff in the energy transition we, we enjoy. So, you know, you get all the CEOs and how can we talk? So, no, 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 no. I just, uh, you know, we just want to talk with experts and have a good conversation. Yeah, I definitely enjoy it. And I'll put links to it in our, uh, in our show notes. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so Lauren. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.